Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest is founder of Echo Unlimited, Mark Echo Cut and Sew and Complex. Please welcome Mark Echo. What's up, guys? Yeah. Thank you for coming uh, tonight. This is kind of like, um, so here's kind of the game plan of what I was hoping to do in the next 45 or so minutes um, is uh, kind of indulge. Uh, oh, there's babies here. I better not curse. Oh, yikes. Cover his ears. Uh, OK. Um, I'm not good with that. Uh, uh, what I thought I would do is kind of walk you through um, some of my backstory, and perhaps uh, I, I apologize in advance if I come off indulgent in any way. It's really not intended. Just trying to share you some of my history, gives context to my philosophy, uh, and then um, you know, kind of work my way up to sharing with you some of the stuff I'm working on right now professionally. Uh, I thought that could be a lot of fun. Uh, and it's almost going to be like a runway show where rather than the designer walks out at the end and he um, waves and pieces out, I'm, this is like a long wave, okay, a long talky wave. So uh, my name uh, is Mark Echo and uh, I uh, was born and raised in Lakewood, New Jersey, uh, about an hour and 30 minutes out of Manhattan and a really interesting ethnically mixed uh, community that diversity really shaped me, big Orthodox Jewish population and also big black and Latino population. So coming up in the 80s with hip hop was when a time when hip hop was something you had to seek, uh, it didn't find you in the way that it does today, um, was a really unique time in shaping my perspective and just on everything really. Um, there's a picture of Fade uh, from the Sure Kings. I don't know if Fade is here tonight. Is, uh, is Fade here? I don't know. Uh, uh, he, we texted each other. He said he might come through. But Fade uh, on the upper left there is with LL Cool J. I remember seeing that picture uh, um, in, I think it was like Black Beat Magazine or something. And I was in you know, middle school, and it's not like you were like bombing and in our trains doing graffiti in the middle of Lakewood, New Jersey. So uh, airbrushing was kind of the existential cousin of graffiti. Uh, and that picture compelled me to say, hey, I could paint sweatshirts too. Uh, and that was kind of a, a big moment for me. So there I am painting at a trade show. I think that was like my first trade show in uh, Atlanta at a Jack the Rapper. It was a music convention. I used to paint live these, these airbrush murals. There's also another one of my paintings that hung in the Rutgers College of Pharmacy. Um, I went to pharmacy school, that makes sense, right? Lakewood, diverse, graffiti, pharmacy, drugs, that all makes sense. Uh, I proceeded to drop out in 1993 uh, when I started uh, Echo Unlimited and the brand uh, um, that kind of set, put, put me on the map. There's my first t-shirt. Uh, we had six t-shirts, and I like to break that out as a reminder uh, when my buyers try to say, like, you're getting too fast for the market. I'm like, yo, my first t-shirt was a dude smoking a blunt. Like, come on. So that gave birth to um, uh, the Rhino. Rhino didn't come for a few years later as a logo. Um, and uh, in 1993, 10 years later, uh, I launched Complex Magazine. It started as a magazine. It actually started uh, 
a year and a half prior to that when I was promising Complex. It was a, a CD-ROM that hung on every garment. And at the time, uh, we called it Climate. And uh, we used to market Echo Dot Complex. Uh, but meanwhile, that first issue with Rosario on the cover, 10 plus years later, uh, we've built you know something really special. So you know, parlaying this kind of painted t-shirt things into media, like the textbook, the script, it wasn't perhaps obvious. Um, uh, in 95, I launched uh, a video game with Atari. That's Talib Kweli's uh, voice. Um, and that here's like a, some video footage of this old uh, game that we did. It was in 05. That yielded uh, an event, a marketing event uh, that um, uh, was important. I needed to figure out how to break through the noise. Uh, this was, you know, in 05, 06, pre-Google's acquisition of YouTube. Uh, online viral videos were special, like, well, you, you know, wasn't a thing where we understand viral videos as it was today. YouTube was a very different place. And I did this thing, I don't know if you guys ever saw it, but um, I'll just let, I'll share it with you really quick. Um, there's footage of me uh, tagging President then George Bush's uh, Air Force One, um, breaking into Andrew's Air Force Base and proceeding to paint uh, still free on the, the side of the plane. So that was kind of a crazy event, and no, I didn't really tag the president's airplane. If, you, if I would, I wouldn't be here today, I'd be dead. Uh, but that was a, kind of a fun event and really kind of speaks to my marketing philosophy, my philosophy on branding, my philosophy on, on breaking through the clutter and trying to be differentiated. In uh, a year prior to that, actually, was my first runway show for um, cut and sew, and, uh, and I showed that in Florence, Italy. So it's kind of just trying to set time markers here, because here in, in 2014, 10 years later, a lot has happened in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, a lot has happened. Which is really cool is one of the things that happened was I sold my company, uh, but I am back at full-time designing and operating Mark Echo Cut and Sew. Uh, I just wrapped up my first season that I prepped for for this market. So it's really exciting to kind of have parted with my baby and slightly been slightly amputated uh, from the thing that I love to do, which is create and design, and then to be able to be back uh, you know, a decade later and uh, at it again is, is very professionally gratifying. Uh, serendipitously, when that all went down, I also launched you know, uh, a book called Unlabel that was really the reflection of that thought process, that period, that experience of having built something and sold it, um, uh, came out this past uh, uh, October. And I thought what I'd do is use the book as a framework, not that I could share with you everything in the book, but to guide us along our discussion tonight uh, and almost have it perhaps act as somewhat of a curriculum. I like to think that I'm, you know, a, a closeted teacher. Uh, anyways. So the book starts off by saying, my brand is Mark Echo, I'm a brand, I'm not a label. That sounds really like saccharine and pretentious and self-important, doesn't it? Like, I am Ishmael, like, you know, at the beginning of Moby Dick, as if the book's that important, right? Um, but I do that with the intent to make the reader and the audience flat-footed, because here today in 2014, you all are brands, whether you know it or not and whether you like it or not. 
And I talk about this distinction of like, you know, the fact that I, I feel like I'm uniquely qualified and having built a brand to be able to share what I mean by saying that and, and, and the trappings of building a brand, both the one that's perceived, skin to the world, and the one that's really your values infrastructure, the guts to the skin brand. And I talk about the ups and downs of building a brand where, you know, your name's on a bottle of fragrance or on underwear. And there's a lot of vanity and hubris that could come from that. Uh, and the trappings of that and how it could serve you and how, if you're not careful, it can underserve you. So the book, in a lot of ways, is a guide to help kind of actualize, you know, folks' personal brands. So like I said, the personal branding conversation is really saccharine, goopy, could be patronizing shit, right? So I wanted to make it fun and kind of visually stimulating and cool, perhaps, because I think it's an important conversation. And... I talk about in the book, you know, rather than be a label, be an unlabel, and I'm gonna kind of build up to what the hell I mean with that. So the book uses this formula, right? That, like, I don't know, like, uh, if it's possible, but I said, I'm gonna tackle, like, a mathematical model. To see if you could actually model authenticity. Could it be done? Could you actually lock steps and things into sequence and actually formulate authenticity? I mean, they figured out, uh, you know, uh, relativity, or at least that's what we're told. So, uh, even though I don't know if you ran the numbers on E equals MC square, but that shit is kind of bonkers. I still don't understand it. Um, but it goes kind of something like this. And it's the framework for the book, and I won't get too heavy into it, but I'll just give you the thought process. It's unique voice times infinite truth plus one's capacity for change, this kind of balancing uh, their, their, their ability to learn all multiplied by the range of emotional impact, right? This notion of here in the house that Steve built of what you make people feel is more important than what you make, all raised to one's ability to imagine, right? So I'll leave it for you to read the book uh, and perhaps you try to crack and see if I'm full of shit or not. So rather than get heavy into that, I'll give you five top line prescriptions from a pharmacy school dropout that'll hopefully give you a sense of my philosophy and that will lead into what I'm working on now. So, five prescriptions. Y'all ready? Yeah. Not taking notes? No? Got some, all right, mentally, visually. So number one, number one prescription is be a creator. Well, that's a slightly broad, obtuse idea. What do you mean, Mark? Well, you know, words, Words really matter, and I'm a bit of a, a word etymology nerd. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, the knowing the words you use deliberately uh, is a really powerful thing. I, I think I might have got that from become, being a fan of hip-hop. Like, hip-hop was like a gateway to language and learning of so much for me. But this idea of being creator is something that we're kind of like... A little scared of because like creator is some divine shit right that's like michelangelo uh you know uh creation um how many of you guys fancy yourselves entrepreneurial by a show of hands keep your hands up keep your hands up if you're an entrepreneur now if you also feel that you're an artist keep your hands up okay all right see what's interesting if i were to ask that of you guys tonight, how many of you guys fancy yourself an artist in kindergarten, all of you would have put your hands up. All of you would have put your hands up. But something happened in the system where like the artist or the creator thing got beat the hell out of you, 
right? So now you think of yourself as an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur is like the new black. It's really trendy, right? It's, some, it's a really fancy, cool word. Like, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, what, what, what does that mean? Entrepreneur, like the French, middle French root of the word entrepreneur, which I think is a word that kind of sucks, um, is it means to undertake. And when I think of my career, my 20 years at this game, like, it's been a lot more than undertaking. It's been a lot more of a messy kitchen than that. So try creator for a while, right? We get stuck with words, right? And because words matter, we talk a lot. And culturally, we do a lot more talking than working. And we actually think, because we're talking so much here with our fingers or like on gramming or whatever the hell you're doing, that that shit is work. It's not work. Action and words, two very distinct things. And culturally, for better or worse, we live at this time where it's like a vomitorium in social media, right? Where there are folks here that want to share this shit right now. I see a dude taking a picture right now, right? Like wanting to share that. He said it, right? But it's really what's going on kind of culturally, right? We, these, these tools are amazing. They're powerful for self-publishing, but it has become somewhat of kind of a cultural vomitorium. So understand what I mean by creator. Just because you can't paint or manipulate the plastic arts doesn't mean that you can't problem solve like an artist. You dig what I'm saying? Right? You have to learn to embrace the messiness of creation. As someone who's built you know, pretty big businesses, uh, I've found that it's often a lot less uh, undertaking and a lot less uh, messy kitchen artist uh, kind of environment. You have to tolerate that. And one of the things that happens when you grow and the rigor happens and like you're trying to quant and turn numbers, sometimes you learn, you lose the emotional inception of why you freaking started in the first place. That artist thing is an important thing. And just because you can't paint your Mr. Left Brain doesn't mean you can't exercise your right brain. It's just like pull-ups, all right? Everybody's responsible for it, even the fucking accountant, okay? Feel me? Hope the kid was gone for that one. Number two, sell without selling out. All right, selling out. Like, this is a real sensitivity point coming up in, you know, in the 80s and 90s. You know, hip-hop, especially when it was emergent, people were really sensitive and kind of like prepubescent, like kids, uncomfortable in their skin, goofy about like, Yo, should I commercialize this, monetize? Is that real? Keeping it real, that's selling out, you're crossing up. There was a lot of that discussion. Growing up in the 80s, culture was more organized in these vertical silos. Today, I tell this to young people, they don't get it. Like today, it's all mashed up. It's great, it's a great time, but, but we still, for whatever reason, have this sensitivity about like selling out. And the way I define it is this idea of to double cross one's creative intention, right? Words matter. So let's define at least how I see it, right? Despite and contrary to popular opinion, there need not be this holy war between creativity and business. We view creativity, creator, divine, Michelangelo, and the business thing, all Don Draper, it's dirty, it's Madison Avenue, it's gross, that's not what artists do. And contrary to popular opinion, from my experience, the very thing that makes you a great artist could be the very thing that makes you a great entrepreneur. They are not mutually exclusive. And as I say, if you like it or not, or know it or not, if you're selling whatever good product or service, you're ultimately selling yourself. You are a brand. You know, 
deal with it, okay? Deal with it, all right? You're another product in the bodega, all right? Deal with it. Feel me? All right. So this image is kind of interesting to me because this is like what I grew up with, right? Robert Downey Jr. in Less Than Zero. I don't know, it's like a really Western cultural thing, like self-loathing, starving artist thing. I don't know where that shit comes from. Like this whole like, oh, I have to die for my art, starve, like die, die, die. Like no, I have to suffer, right? What is, where does that come from? That's such a Western American phenomenon. I don't, I don't get it. Right? And I, I, I think that the kind of cool that matters is the one that is earned in the currency of actually executing something. Having an idea. Michael Jordan at the free throw line, jumping, tongue out, shorts all baggy, actually dunking that ball, that's cool. Because he executed. Right? Being measured, that's a brand of cool that I vote for. Not that just because you say it's so cool. What I tell everybody, you know, artists and otherwise, is Never feel bad about sex successfully selling your creations. And never feel bad about creating art you can't sell. I could tell you the great ones, if it was Steve Jobs or some other madman creator, this is how they think. They don't hold on to it in a painful way in an ivory tower. They want to share. So sell without selling out. Number three. Create wealth that matters, right? It's always like the guy with money who like is like, oh, create wealth that matters. What is that? Yeah, like it's not really about the money. And I feel like so cornball and cliche talking about it, but th th just follow me here, right? They teach us in school when we're all lined up in that 12-year sentence, right? That X plus Y equals Z, right? The numbers don't lie, right? This is what Jay said too. He quoted whoever originally said it. But numbers don't lie, but people's emotions about them make them have an interesting disposition about those numbers. So this whole idea of X plus Y equals Z is kind of a load of horseshit, right? So busy counting. People so busy counting their money, their grades, their wins, their followers, their likes, and the kids in the room, right? So busy, count, 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 count. My prescription, Quit counting. Just follow me here for a second, guys, All right? What we do, we have this nature, it's a human nature thing, we kind of codify things, right? Codify meaning to put rules or order or systems together to organize shit, right? This is what we do, okay? And we do this with everything. I mean, the diamond, here's a great story, right? The diamond as a, for instance, right, 1870, there was a huge cache of diamonds in Southern Africa. Suddenly the diamond inventory in the world, they went flush with inventory. So suddenly this thing that supposedly was such a rare value commodity, there were a lot of. And what was interesting in a codification, Ernest Oppenheimer, this guy, comes into the mix and he's like, yo, I'm gonna buy up all the diamond mines, create a monopoly, set the price, but I need one thing. I need someone to put the sex appeal on it, right? So who does he get? He goes out and he gets this guy, Gerald Luck, right? Actually, um, he hires this guy from this prominent agency here in New York. These are facts, you could Wikipedia this shit. Uh, 
and he concocts this plan to convince people that diamonds are really important for an, on another cult, for another cultural reason. That, by the way, is not Gerald Luck. I couldn't find a picture of him, but he kind of it could be, right? Work with me. Suspension of disbelief. So, what does he do? He works to place that shit in Hollywood, right? Diamonds are a best girl's best friend, you know, and he helps successfully market a need for a client in Oppenheimer, and he codified. He codified so successfully, right, that, and this is where I, issue, I warn you to be careful, that they deified the diamond. They deified it, right? They, they made it a function of Western courtship, okay? This is a fascinating kind of concept. Now, look, there's skills in that codification, right? Like I do it, we all do it in marketing ourselves. But we have to be careful in not getting false sense of what's important, wealth that matters. And in the fashion industry especially, this notion of what luxury is. Luxury, luxury, codify, deify. Codify, deify. Let me tell you, man, luxury, like luxury is a Ponzi scheme, okay? Luxury is fiction, right? We know what real luxury is. You were taught it when you were a little child, when you built relationships of trust, okay? Time, meaningful sex, all right? Like, that's what life's about. So when you create wealth that matters, you have a healthy relationship with what luxury is. So I challenge you, on your definition of are you, codif or are you deifying these things? So stop seeking validation that can only be found in finite numbers, okay? I know that guys are doing it. I see folks out there, okay? A bunch of brats, you know, being Instagram rich, okay? Quit counting, all right? Quit deifying. If you're gonna deify a dollar, deify the self-made path. Okay, that's wealth that matters. Don't measure it by a finite number. Measure it by actually doing it, fulfilling what you're motivated to do, your dream. Wealth that matters cannot be counted. Number four, be an unlabel. So this one's a big one. I'm gonna share some pearls here. It's just, the, you know, be patient for those on their feet. Hello. This is a trailer. My, is my friend, white, my friend Sam Retzer's here. Did Jewish, the soundtrack Catholic, for this. Or, or rich, trailer smart, from my book. Numb, talented, or dumb. You see, the world will try to package you and put you on a shelf. So if you're gonna be one, brand it for yourself. So I share that with you to check out the song. I'm into. Slinky. I grew up with the sound, the song Slinky in my head, and I still haven't gotten it out, so I used it to market my book. The point of that little excerpt of the trailer is that, you know, I acknowledge that as a society, the codifying thing, right? We want to organize things in a taxonomy like products on a shelf. This is, there's, there's a purpose for this that helps increase our efficiency, our uh, relationship with managing information, and, you know, there's often good intended. We know where the meat is in the meat aisle and where the condoms are in the condoms. Sometimes they're together, depending on which store you're at. Um, but there's a reason for this. But there's also a caution to this. Because this framework of labels, exterior labels, has an unintended consequence if you're not careful, right? 
this idea of focusing on the veneer, the exterior, right, often has us more focused on the outside only, trying to attempt to remain of what's in fashion, what's in vogue, what's in the zeitgeist, right? So we end up unintentionally, the consequences, we end up often guilty of groupthink. We dress the same, right? We look the same and we join this sheep of, this herd of sheep. Fashion's an interesting word. Now I love the industry that I'm in, uh, but there are some idiosyncrasies about it. Let's be intellectually honest, right? Fashion from the Latin uh, factionum is a group of people acting together. That's the root, the etymology, right? But fashion, and I get the zeitgeist thing. I get like a trend, the all black everything, or like I get that, and I'm into that. I'm myself like when something, it's, a, it's an amazing and fascinating thing when people together have this collective cultural consensus of the way things look. But you have to be careful. And I could tell you my industry is guilty of it because it often can be very fascist, different word, okay? Very harsh control or authority and rules. And my experience about fashion, which is interesting, is that I've dealt with and I've seen like what I thought was like this rock and roll landscape actually be a landscape where there's a lot of rules, okay? And somewhat ironic, right? is that in a, often in a, a spastic fit of defiance, we try to label ourselves black sheeps and we just end up in a herd of more black sheep, right? Like the goth kids all matchy-matchy. Like, let me tell you an anecdote, Little Pearl. The day, I won't forget it because it was the day that um, TARP happened, right? This is remote. There, it was October 6, 2008. I hosted a CFDA board uh, dinner in my office. Talk about this in my book. And there it was, and I was so excited, right? And I was so like, I was in another place professionally. Like I was so not focused on my core business at the time, to be honest. Uh, and I was really wanting to kind of build consensus with the CFDA around streetwear and its validity. I'll never forget it, right? Uh, Stephen Kolb uh, was there, the, the uh, operating uh, um, president, I guess, of the CFDA or he's kind of the administrative president. Uh, this is, oh, the arrows don't work, Diane von Furstenberg, uh, you know, De Laurenta, and uh, I remember Kenneth Cole, and I had this document on streetwear. I was like, here's the gospel of streetwear. I wanted to coerce the CFDA to say, hey, maybe guys, we should think about adding a category into the CFDA awards that thinks about sport and street, so we have a more inclusive perspective on you know, a different cohort of designers. I mean, me, myself, being a guy that came up painting t-shirts in my garage, you know, I felt like this was my duty to, to, to kind of carry that torch. So I remember this uh, instance, uh, and I gave them my doctrine. I tried to teach them on like Tinker Hatfield and James Jebbia and like a whole bunch of other people that were competitors, frankly, right? And I said, like, why is it that when like Tinker Hatfield designs a dunk, it's industrial design? and it's a commercially available product, right? But when Marc Jacobs does this, a shoe that looks a lot like it, it's fashion, right? And they were like, oh, this is so refreshing, we love this, so the, 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 we, we will take a committee. Let us say and have a committee, we'll get together and we will think about it uh, to see if we could contemplate this idea of a separate category in the CFDA awards. 
And this idea of like challenging industrial design versus, or saying that it could be equal to luxury design. That was my intent. It's exciting because I had all the gatekeepers, right? I had their ear, right? Uh, and I brought them together. So I waited for that committee. And, um, you know, I waited. And I waited some more. And finally, I, I just kept calling them and saying, well, when are we having the committee? And my assistant uh, and, uh, called to, to speak on behalf, my behalf, try to put the puzzles together here. And I recall them saying, well, you know, we, we think that the economy is too bad right now and that the CFDA awards are fine how they are organized. Thank you very much. Well, we'll delay, we'll, let's hold off on that for a minute. So that was kind of like a, a moment where I was like, damn, really? It's like a blivet. You see that image there? That's a blivet. Do you guys know what a blivet is? You know what a blivet is? It's a mathematical symbol, right? It's basically a construct of an optical illusion, right? When there's these three cylindrical prongs at one end, like, just study that. Where does it begin? Where does it end? It basically means something really annoying and pointless. I was experiencing a blivet. It didn't make sense. The economy, how does it have to relate to the, like, why I, I couldn't put two and two together, right? That's when I realized, like, you know, fashion could be fiction, you know, and, and, and what am I doing here having this conversation about, like, what is luxury versus what is industrial design and the, the, what's going on? And not that I have a beef with the CFDA, because I really don't. I don't want to sound bitter or anything like that, because they're really good people and they've been increasingly, you know, uh, uh, it seems receptive and, and, and inviting in diverse groups of talent. But I've realized it's like, you know, a PR person will tell you, like, perception is reality. Let me tell you something. Reality is reality, right? And I thought about, like, what was the reality on that day that binded us all, despite the perception that we were all putting off? And even I was guilty of in hosting this kind of Last Supper indulgent-like thing. TARP, right? And I realized, why am I stuffing this square peg into a round hole? And I realized what I was guilty of doing. I was trying to get their approval, right? I was trying to get consensus of their approval. And what I've found is that divergent ideas really breed independence and innovation. And here I was trying to take a divergent concept and trying to satisfy it by their compliance metric. And this is, this is what I talk about pretty heavy in the book, right? Groupthink can breed gatekeepers. We're all guilty of it. Every business vertical at the university level, at the local you, you know, supermarket you might work at, there are always gatekeepers. And, and gatekeepers, to an extent, are important in helping us organize things. But when we assign so much power to them, we lose sight of our dreams, of our objectives, right? We create institutional nostalgia, right? And often we create our own kinds of ivory towers, the ones that are in our heads that we're indulgently nostalgic of ourselves, right? So I ask of institutions, how I measure them as successful, is are they allowing, are they, do we allow them to exist for their pomp and their ceremony or for their impact and their actions? And that's when I realized is like, yo, Perhaps, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree right here, all right? Gatekeepers, focused on gatekeepers. 
give them so much power instead of reminding ourselves that it's about the goalkeeper, right? Not what you make, but how you make people feel. You often in a business or product or service and fashion, whatever industry you're in, don't lose sight of that. Please, please. I know so many people in this fashion game, they get caught up in being a, a, a gatekeeper darling and they screw the pooch on the business. Don't lose sight of that. Goalkeepers is what matters. And when rules start to look like a blivet, defy them. Measure yourself up to your own standards, okay? Versus their gatekeepers often abstract and irrelevant compliance rubric, okay? It's a lot like school sometimes. They're testing you for shit that you don't really need to do in the real world, okay? Okay. So when you refuse to be labeled, suddenly you play by your own rules, not theirs, right? You unlabel. That's what, it, that's what unlabeling is about. Number five, authenticity is a pursuit, not a destination. I love that picture. Anatomy grosses some people out, makes them flat-footed. It's all raw and gross. But the thing about that picture that I love is it's so truthful. Why? Because there's not a straight line in it. There's not one straight line in that image, right? But yet, in nature, the fact that you can't define find this straight line, we want to organize our life in rational, logical, straight line kind of ways. I challenge you next time you're in the park or in the woods or something or looking at a tree, like, find a straight line. I double dog dare you. And I've had people get pissed on this, talk about, oh, hexagonal ball sat is straight. You know, light is straight, yeah, in a curved space. <laughs> Orthogonal lines, spider webs are straight, no, curved to the ground. They don't exist, but yet we assign our whole existence, our whole vision in this straight line manner. But when we realize that when you actually live through it to realize where it is, shit's over there. It's not right in front of you. As much as you want to will it to be, it's not a straight line. So learn to, to manage your expectation, expectations in a new way that, that comprehends this. It's not saying set the bar low. It's saying have healthy expectations and relationships with the things that you're working on, right? Like the formula as if someone could actually model a formula for authenticity. Get the fuck out of here. Come on, please. X plus Y does not equal Z. What it looks like more is longitudinal calculus, right? Your actions over time. That's what brands do. That's what they're measured by. I'm only as good in the market, in the world, by my actions, right? And uh, 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 what I do with it in my time on this planet. That's how, that's how I am defined. So when someone says it's finished, you're finished, it's done, who says it's finished? So busy thinking it's done. When we know it's a work in progress, right? Which is why I'm so excited to share with you what I'm working on now. A part of my bell curve, where I am on that longitudinal calculus point right here, right? Back at Mark Echo Cut and So. What I wanted to do when I came back to the helm is like, you know what? I know that our products are just products or transactional. They only exist for an instance in time. So it's important to me that every idea that inspires them is permanent and useful. That's like, that's what I want to be held accountable for. 
Is it permanent and useful when we are being inspired, so when we're working on this? Because yes, I'm not gonna you know, win on a, uh, a, a knife fight over fashion, but like, my ideas is what has is, is, is differentiated me. So the fall line and really the repositioning of the brand is for the unapologetically self-made. That's where I've realized what I'm, like that's, that's who I am. I'm unapologetic about doing it my own way. That's what I want the brand to be about. And that's what I want the brand to embody. Science has not taught us yet if madness is or is not the sublimity of the intelligence, Edgar Allan Poe. Madness was a huge inspiration for this collection, right? For centuries, people have debated this stuff, right? It's a natural order of rebellion. The question what came before you and why, and if it's supposedly valid or not. This is the relationship between the teacher and the student, right? And geniuses, whoever they declare in front of us, that's why I use the framework of a book for the collection, the student, the teacher, the madman. This love-hate relationship between the teacher and the student. Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle. Aristotle was like, F Socrates, right? I don't, I, I think it's different, I, I don't agree. Why should Socratic method my ass, right? He questioned it, this, this love-hate relationship, right? So the details in the line, lots of tromploy, uh, surfaces, crackle, um, print surfaces, this idea of the teacher camo. Uh, I'm a nerd when it comes to outerwear and details. Uh, I wanted the surfaces to feel f like frayed and distressed. And, you know, uh, hopefully rather than talk about it, what I encourage you guys to do now, if you wish, is find yourself in a fashion presentation at the Apple Store, right? So rather than me walking out and waving, Right, and being done, it's here starting. So I, I encourage you to come close. Come look at the clothes yourselves. What the hell, hear me talking about it from a distance. Come close and take a look at it. Get on the stage, people. Thanks for coming, guys. I appreciate you. You guys go hang with the clothes. I'm peacing out. Have a good night. <laughs>